This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Hello, Utah families. How y'all doing this fine spring day? I'm looking forward to having flowers and pots on my porch. I'm enjoying the mix of rainy and sunny days, um, which we have as parents and foster parents. So uh, I look forward to this next uh, discussion. I'm Deborah Lindner, and let me begin with our subject for today's podcast. It is autism spectrum disorder. Um, it's also known as ASD. And we, at this point, I would say that many of us know someone who is uh, on the spectrum, but sometimes we don't even know what the spectrum means. Liz Rivera and I are going to dive into these questions and more. And we have uh, two excellent guests who have joined us who can help us with that understanding, Liz. Yes, we do. We're so lucky to have... um... Ken Brown. Ken is, um, he and his wife are foster parents here in Salt Lake County. And he's also um, an adult who has, um, who's on the spectrum and he was actually diagnosed as an adult. And also joining us today is Jordan Ames. And I'm so excited to see her. She um, was a previous employee of Utah Foster Care. She was a consultant and uh, here in Salt Lake, so we worked together for many years. And she is a parent of a child who is on the spectrum. Uh, we thought that not only is April a great month for flowers, as Deborah talked about, but it'd be a great month for us to talk about um, the autism spectrum. So Jordan, let's start with you from the parent standpoint, and then we can get into the other side of the perspective with Ken. Um, at what age was your child diagnosed? What did you notice? Um, and what are the some of the things that foster parents can uh, look out for? So Charlie has, um, I don't know, more like classic autism, like what you would assume autism looks like, that's my Charlie. Um, so he developed, he was developing pretty typically up until about 15, 16 months. And then we noticed speech kind of stalled out. And then slowly over time, speech started to drop off and things like the joint attention, started to go away and eye contact started to go away. Um, and then by the time he was two and a half, he was diagnosed with autism. Um, I had to be a little pushy because our pediatrician was like, he's fine, he's just shy, he doesn't wanna do this. Um, but I'm, I'm sure you guys have all heard this, but if you know one person on the spectrum, you know one person on the spectrum. So I was told things like, well, he's very affectionate and he loves you very much. And look at him, look at your face and look at him check in with you. And that couldn't be autism, you know? Um, but for the most part, if social and communication is impaired, joint attention is impaired, and there's a sensory component, um, typically, that will fall into it. Your child will probably be diagnosed with autism at that point. So things I noticed, I was the biggest one, what the biggest red flag was the loss of skills. Um, so these all, were skills that he had before that he, he lost. Yes. Yeah. Ah. That happens sometimes. I mean, I really don't want to get into a vaccine debate. I'll roll my eyes so hard guys. <laughs> but uh, 
So that's, I think that's why sometimes people are like, aha, it's the vaccines, because it happens around, sometimes when it, that loss of skills starts, it happens around when kids are getting immunizations. But it's also like, you have to remember that your brain is always developing. And this is the way his brain has developed. Like it's, um, anyway, it's just his natural progression or regression at that time of his brain development. Um, but yeah, that was the biggest red flag. And that was probably the scariest red flag was the loss of skills. And they're coming back. He's going to be eight next week. Um, eye contact's really good. He understands what you're saying to him. He, um, yeah, he's a great, sweet, happy kid. Um, speech still isn't there, but I am okay with that. Obviously, like we're working towards it, but it's not the end all be all for him because we have technology now that can assist him in communicating. Um, but the sensory piece is really big too mm -hmm. for an autism diagnosis. And that's, that's probably what he struggles with most. Um, where he's, some kids will be really avoidant of certain sounds or textures or tastes. Um, he's the opposite. He's a sensory seeker. So he wants like really big, tight hugs. He wants to swing on the swings. All, he'll swing for like 30 minutes if you let him. Um, he wants to jump. He sleeps, sleeps with a really heavy weighted blanket to calm him down. Um, he's just constantly searching for that extra sensory input. And okay. understanding, understanding that has helped us anyway. And that may, that may um, account for a child who wants to touch everything too. And yeah, touch yeah. You in what, in ways that you may think, oh, they're inappropriate, but they're not. Um, yeah. Someone on the spectrum. So let's bring in Ken here. Ken, you were diagnosed as an adult. How does that, how is that different from being diagnosed as a child? Well, being a child, you actually um, would end up with the, um, like Crookhead is able to uh, get the, the therapy and all the help. Um, being diagnosed, um, see, I was uh, about about 40 years old when I got diagnosed. So I had already, uh, I had already gone uh, through high school. I had already gone through uh, the military. I already went through a, a mission for uh, the church all this and I did not have a clue what I was and so there's no therapy no understanding or any of that and it it it, <laughs> it having the diagnosis I look back now and say you know there's things that I probably shouldn't have been allowed to do I should not have went uh, been allowed to go on a mission um, especially outside the uh, United States I went to uh, Mexico um, I hardly understand any, um, uh, body language as it is, uh, I have a hard time with my own language and now you're going to throw me into another country, another language and a, another set of body language, um, kind of a setup for failure. Um, lucky for me, I say lucky, <laughs> but I don't know if anybody would consider it lucky. I got sick. I got amoebic dysentery and um, was sent home early. Um, that was probably the best thing for me um, for uh, looking, looking back. At the time, I didn't think it was very great. 
Um, but looking back, it was definitely the, the best thing for me. Um, then uh, soon thereafter, I joined the military. Um, once again, a whole nother set of language, uh, body language, uh, very important um, to understand whether or not uh, what you're doing um, is not just appropriate, but um, should be done. Um, I had some uh, weird <laughs> uh, encounters. I laugh about it now because uh, I should have caught, caught, caught it. And let's turn to you as a foster parent. Um, I would think that most kids in foster care or even teens are not diagnosed. What is something that foster parents should look for? What are some of the signs that well, really being, you should you should be an advocate for them? Being and that's where I um, the one kid that we have right now. Um, he's 15 years old. He came to us. Uh, unfortunately, he actually came to us on his birthday. He was actually taken from uh, the um, from uh, the homeless shelter, put into the Christmas box house, and then given to us. Uh, and all this happened on his birthday, on his fifteenth birthday. So, um, since he's been with us, he has the self stimming. Uh, he rocks back and forth. Um, one kind of indication, but um, there are other things that could cause that as well. Um, he um, is very uh, specific with his words. Um, although he does use wrong terminology. Um, he's not, uh, doesn't have the, uh, the language. Um, because of the, the background that he comes from. Um, however, there's other traits that, I, and I just can't put my finger on it on, and trying to list them. Um, however, he, I, I would say that he needs to be diagnosed. Um, however, um, we've talked to the, um, the therapist, we've talked to the caseworker, we've talked to the GAL and all this, and they're all okay with trying to get him diagnosed. The problem he has is he won't talk to the therapist. Which I guess is, is his right. And I guess that's one of the things we wanted to talk about today is you know privileging the person on the spectrum. And this kind of goes back to your story about the army. Um, another thing we wanna make sure we talk about is how people who aren't on the spectrum can increase their understanding. So instead of trying to ask people like you can to do it, do it right, you know, do it the way you're supposed to do it. Um, what can people do to say, increase our understanding of people on the spectrum so we can help them do things the way that feels right to them, feels good to them? Um, I, I think probably the, the big thing that has helped me feel better about being autistic um, and being okay with it is one, I was a, uh, an adult being diagnosed with it and having finally, everything now makes sense. The, the, the oddities, the quirks, the, the stupid things, uh, everything uh, that I've done in the past, um, <laughs> kind of uh, green, you know, oh, that's why, that's why I do that that way. 
Um, but I also say my wife, um, Irene, um, absolute gift, uh, I, 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 wonderful woman. Um, what a blessing um, she is in my life. Um, and because of her, um, there's a lot of understanding that I end up with. Because uh, what she ends up doing is she's taken, um, because she has an autistic in her life, she's taken it on, her, on herself to understand. So she's done a lot of research. And in her, some of her findings, she's got, uh, like, <laughs> for instance, she, um, she, instead of playing imaginatively, autistics tend to organize. They'll sit there and uh, the Hot Wheels, uh, the dinosaurs, the animals, the Legos, the whatever, Groceries they're sitting the there. Huh? Groceries in the fridge. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's a great well, game. Let's organize is, the fridge. It's, it's <laughs> got to be organized. <laughs> it's got to be organized. And what they're, how we are organizing it, only, only we are going to understand it. <laughs> Nobody else is going to understand it. Now, at the time that she, my wife discovered this, she asked me, and this was back when I was playing Farmville. And she noticed that my farm was organized. I had all the cows, all the horses, all the sheep, all the goats, all the birds, all the farm equipment, all nicely organized in groups by themselves. Um, if I got a new sheep, I had to reorganize my whole, my whole farm um, because I had to make room over in the sheep area for this new sheep. So is that, so let me ask you, Ken, you said play, is that, is it fun? To, is for it, me? Uh -huh. Oh, it's very relaxing. It's enjoyable. Okay. Cause I very think that, relaxing. I think that sometimes um, we see that we, you know, some people might see that and think it's anxiety and a way to manage anxiety, no, but it's actually enjoyable. It's very calming. Yeah. It's actually, enjoyable. Um, it's one of the, one of the things that it, once you find out what is, um, what they're doing, what, what they do is organizing and it's calming. Um, she allowed, I, um, sense of and that they, I, I I move from one thing to another um, I don't I, I don't play Farmville anymore um, I now um, collect Lego minifigures um, I have probably over 500 not a single one is the same um, all the genres are connected to uh, are on one plate. So this is a 32 by 32 plate. Um, I have all the marvels on that one plate on one plate. I have all the uh, DC on another plate, all the Star Wars, all the Harry Potter, and so forth and so on. If I get a new one, I have to reorganize that whole plate, which is um, fun. Yeah. But yeah. For me, <laughs> yeah so fine. so jordan i wanted to ask you because i think hearing ken talk about this and i'm yeah. thinking you know behaviors once again that you know when we don't understand it it seems quirky or unusual but it actually has meaning so what do you what do you see with charlie that uh, has that same kind of meaning or calm a lot of, fun? A lot of the same things um the stimming 
I, I don't mind it. He's not hurting himself. He's not hurting someone else. If he wants to pace back and forth, holding a shoe and like chit chatting to it, I'm gonna let him do it. He's, it calms him down. It makes him happy. It's not a big deal, but I think a lot of times people will come in and be like, well, that's not what you do with the shoe. You're supposed to put it on your foot and walk around. And like, that's what you should be doing. And why are you doing this? And then it just like causes all this stress and anxiety. Like, yep. And he'll have, he'll have a meltdown shoe, quicker. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think a good life, just like life rule in general is that you don't know anyone else's life. So just like be cool and don't pass judgment. Like the kid crying on the floor of the grocery store his mom doesn't need to comment on um, how misbehaved he is. The lights are too bright. This you don't know what's going on. Like, could have he had about a whole day of intense sensory stimulation, and he walks in and like smells a seafood section, and that's it. He hits. You know what I mean? Um, or this is my favorite because Charlie is very tall and he loves a stroller. <laughs> but so he's almost eight. He looks like he's ten. He'll be like all crunched up in the stroller with his knees like up to his chin, just like loving life while I push him around. But then I get comments like, oh, he's too big to be in that stroller. Mm. Um, he's happy. He's happy. And it's none of your business. Yeah. You don't know anyone else, else's life. You don't know anyone else, else's struggles. Um, is it really a big deal if he likes to, you know, if we have like a, a place that was like little doors and keys and instead of pushing the keys in and opening the doors and getting stuff out and putting stuff in he's just opening the door over and over again. Like, it's not really that big of a deal at the end of the day. And that's what happens is that we look at like Charlie's play or Ken's play or their behaviors. And we say, Oh, that's wrong. That's not how you're, you're supposed to get the Legos out and put them in pieces and play with them and make them talk to each other. You're not supposed to just like set them out on a tray or you're not supposed to open and close those doors or you're supposed to play with the play-doh and not Charlie likes to get we have tons of play-doh pieces and play-doh he just likes to set them all out and like look at them and like oh, look at all my toys and then put them all back in the box and put it away like yep. is yeah, that so, that big of a deal like, so as a foster parent or as a parent again some of the best advice is let the child lead and give relax, the child yeah. what they need and relax and um you know and going along with Liz was talking about using language and I've heard it two different ways. So I don't know the answer to this. Can we say someone is autistic or do we always say they're on the spectrum or can it be interchangeable? Being, being diagnosed and talking, um, you know, not as a normal person, I would say um, for me, I like it hearing it that I'm on the spectrum because um, that indicates to me um, that you understand that you have just met a person, but I am on the spectrum. I'm not, uh, the spectrum, is, it, it defines me, but it doesn't. I'm still, you know, I'm still a, uh, I'm still a human. I still have feelings um, and they can get hurt. Um, and everything, just like anybody else, it's just different. And I think, it, yeah, from my understanding, it depends on the person. Like I am a neurotypical person. I do not have a diagnosis. I am always, I've, you know, from my previous work, like with Utah foster care and just working with kids in different populations, I'm all, I was always big into like people first language. That's what we do. It's people first. So instead of like autistic person, it's person with autism. But I'm learning that a lot of adults 
are like, no, I'm autistic. That's part of me and that's who I am. So I kind of, and just let the person lead and let them let you know what they're comfortable with. Cause I, I think yeah. everyone's different. Has Charlie talked at all about his own understanding of the diagnosis and he, he can't, I guess, right. He's um, not verbal. So he's, right. <laughs> not, he's probably not writing you an essay on his iPad. Yeah. As far as I, he knows, he knows that he is different from his brothers. His brothers are talking, they are making friends, they are out playing. Um, he's not doing those things and it makes him sad. Mm. Um, he's not, it's not like, I think people just see nonverbal and they're like, oh, they're totally unaware of everything around them. And that's not the case. He is very aware. He hears everything you say. People would talk about him right in front of him all the time because they assume he can't hear if he can't talk. You know, it's really terrible and it makes me really mad and it happens all the time. Um, he understands it, it makes him sad. I can yeah. see like this, especially as he's getting older and more aware, I can see the sadness kind of creeping in. But I was also gonna kind of going back to what we we're talking about earlier about diagnosis. If you have a child in your home who you think like, hey, I'm seeing some symptoms, be really annoying until he get, they get diagnosed. That is my best yes. advice. Yeah. My husband always says, like, he's always like reminding me, like, I'll complain about something and he'll be like, this squeaky wheel gets the oil. Just complain, complain. Yep. Like, don't complain to me. Go call them. It, it so does. <laughs> and can you Yeah. Can you're having that's... some experience with that right now with one of the children in yeah. your care? Um, uh, the 15 year old, he's. Uh... And that's harder when it's I, him. I would say he, he is. Yeah, that he's deciding he doesn't want to do it yeah. because then, then that gets to, you can't complain to him. He, the mm -hmm. problem that he has with the uh, the therapist or anything, and it's going to be any therapist, is the fact that um, if he gets help um, or it's a sign of weakness. Mm. Um, and that's where we, we've learned that we've, we we <laughs> any of our foster kids we negotiate with. It's like, okay, we, we were. Yeah. So it what? sounds like he has some cultural uh, expectations too, that, um, you know, he not has, getting he's help. He's been living in the, on the street for yeah. way too long. So have to be his, really tough. Um, so this so, is a kid who has to overcome that way of being and yes, living in the world. And also potentially to overcome the street culture. Yeah. As a foster parent, Ken and Liz, what is the first thing a foster parent should do if they, if they suspect this diagnosis? Me, um, I, I went to the caseworker and the therapist. Um, uh, for one, I, well, uh, autistics aren't usually, they don't beat around the bush anyway. Um, I, I'm very straightforward. My, my, the words I use, they are exactly the word that I want. What if you don't um, get any kind of results for a diagnosis? Like, well, that's where I went to the, uh, my caseworker. Or my so, RFC. Okay, so if you don't get some Just, satisfaction from the caseworker, go to the RFC. Go to somebody else. Resource talk family see, consultant. That, see, we're in a we're I'm in a unique situation, probably, um, and there might be others in the same situation. I have talked to every single person that I can possibly talk to. The 15 year old that we have, um, the only thing that's holding the 15 year old back is the 15 year old because you won't talk to the therapist. Yeah. I had a much different situation where my child is my biological child. He was a toddler. Um, and so really the only people I had to deal with were the professionals who were like, we're fine, let's wait and see. 
Um, and yeah, the, uh, no, don't let anyone tell you wait and see if that's the situation you're in. Um, push for diagnosis. And then the next hurdle was to actually get him diagnosed, to get in and run, it's called an ADOS test. That's A-D-O-S. Um, it was like a six month wait list. Mm. And I was just like, no, not gonna do that. So I called every day, twice a day for like a month until they were like, oh my gosh, we finally had something open up, here you go. So <laughs> Great <laughs> so advice. Kind of have to, advice. yeah, like Be I kind of had to get over like, not everyone's always going to like me. I'm going to be good on people's nerves. And that's what I have to do for Charlie. Sometimes. I know all of all, every child that comes into foster care gets a wellness check. What mm -hmm. is some of the, what are some of the things that in that wellness check, even that they should be checking? Oh, well, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just, I know Charlie really well, but I don't know. Obviously everyone with autism is different, but so in order for an autism diagnosis to occur, they run what's called an ADOS test, A-D-O-S. Don't know what it stands for. Um, and a, just like a typical regular pediatrician or physician does not run it and cannot run it. Um, they should be doing at all your child welfare checkups or all your, yeah, all your child well, well child checkups. There we go. Um, at six months, nine months, 18 months, and two years, they do something called an MCHAT checklist. And it, that's things like, does your child make eye contact? Um, if you look at something across the room, will your child follow your gaze? Does your child look, at, look to your face if um, something new is happening? And keep, I think for a lot of foster parents, or if you have a, a child who's been through trauma, who's in your home, they still might hit some of these and not have autism. What, what do those signs look for in an older child? Would you say, Ken? Uh, that's where for me, uh, I'm only going off of, I, 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 I don't have, I don't have a list. Um, I, I, but um, looking at the child that's with us, um, I, it's, it's just, it, it's the social was, skills yes. primarily, right? He, he, lacks, the, he lacks a lot of the social skills that would, um, would make it so that he would, um, he would be able to function better. And, um, looking at, um, why, why is he deficient at these is, and I, I think it's a little more than just the fact that he's on, lived on the street. Um, or, you know, any of his, any, anything else from his background, um, for that matter. Um, there's, there's more to it. And that's all I, uh, that's all I can, I can yeah. go on. Is so that if you're, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, if you're a parent noticing these markers, um, or if you know, you're in Ken's situation and something is feeling off and it feels more than trauma, like it feels neurological, ask your pediatrician for a referral to a developmental pediatrician. And that's who can do the diagnosis. Um, yeah, it's gotta be, a, so if you're in Utah, you know, primary children's has, does it. Um, the Utah develop, the, what is it? It's where Charlie was diagnosed, the Utah Development Child Assessment Center up at the U. Okay. Um, the, and they usually will do a full exam for him. They'll have a speech therapist come in and him or her, your child, an occupational therapist, make sure they're hearing okay. 
before they even run any testing, like any neurological testing on your child. But that developmental pediatrician is the one who diagnoses. And that might be easier than a therapist, you know, for a kid well, who it, is worried it's, about. It's another angle that I can go at. So as, oh. as a foster parent begins their journey, when they get licensed, they're taught to keep good records. So um, one thing might be, Liz, uh, do you tell foster parents to write everything down that they do notice? You, you tell them that in training. Um, and then again, to keep in touch with your uh, caseworker and a resource family consultant. Everyone should have a, a resource family consultant who is a foster parent. We are nearing the end of the podcast. I would like to, um, to remind people that we have support groups and that's a, another area that um, foster parents can talk to each other and chances are really good that you will find another foster parent with, um, with a child with uh, someone on, with a child on the spectrum. So um, I would recommend getting some support from them. We want to thank both Ken, who's a foster parent and is on the spectrum, and Jordan, who is the parent of a child on the spectrum, for increasing our understanding about what it's like for them and for you as a parent. A um, couple recommendations, seek help from a professional, don't take no for an answer, get a diagnosis um, from a developmental pediatrician. Get for a child, a yeah get a diagnosis from a developmental pediatrician. And lastly, always seek help from a support group. We have foster parent support group. Uh, there are other support groups around the country for uh, parents of children with autism. Any other final thoughts, Liz Rivera? So one thing just that really stood out for me is uh, just the advocacy piece. So Ken talked about his wife, Irene. Um, being such a wonderful kind of almost like a translator um, for for Ken and for people, you know, uh, to understand Ken and Jordan that plays that role for her son too, and how important it is that we all work together um, so that everybody, regardless of, of diagnosis or whatever, is uh, understands each other better. The better we understand each other, the better we that we work together. And a reminder that children in foster care and teens come into foster care with all sorts of diagnoses. And sometimes it just takes a little time. So as a parent or foster parent, be patient, seek help, um, be open to things outside of the box, be open to um, maybe treating that child in a different way, if they need to be treated in a different way, if they need to organize things, if they need to, um, do repetitive behaviors, learn what can be helpful and what's not helpful. Also know that each individual has a distinct set of challenges, but also strengths. You often find things that these kids are very, very good at. So thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to my colleague, Liz Rivera. I'm Deborah Lindner with Utah Foster Care. We'll see you next time for Fostering Conversations. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.